morning. My name is Kevin Lentz. Uh, Jeremiah, our preacher, is out today, and he asked me to fill in, and uh, so here I am. Um, most often, you will see me down there speaking to the children. Uh, occasionally, I get the opportunity of preaching the main message on Sunday, and when that happens, people usually are pretty excited, because when I speak down there, my wife and I only talk for four minutes. So this morning, I will talk for four minutes, about 20 times, 20 times four, 80 minutes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. David can cut me off, too, if I run uh, too long. I have been a member of UBC for 31 years now. I came here as a college student from TCU, and I just kind of stuck around. I'm married here uh, to my wonderful wife, who is April. She's the preschool and children's director. We have one son, Peter, who is at home today because he woke up with a cough yesterday. And if anybody coughs in this day and age, you get very nervous. But he's had two negative COVID tests, so but he's staying home and resting. Uh, he's in, heading into fourth grade. He's going to preteen camp this year. He is, uh, for the very first time, he's really thrilled about that. Most Sunday mornings during this time, I'm actually supervising in the nursery or I'm teaching kindergartners upstairs during Kid Connect, so I don't get to see the sermons live. Uh, fortunately, our Sunday services are broadcast online and I can go back and watch them later in the week. So I did get to see a few weeks ago Jeremiah opened his sermon by explaining that sometimes he walks around the stage and sometimes he uses a stool to sit on. And someone had asked him if there was a reason he chose between the two. And he joked that it was related to the seriousness of his message. Now, when I preach, they let me pick what I want to use on stage. And I always choose this nice wooden lectern, mainly so I have something to clutch onto. Because the secret is that even though I speak from here almost every Sunday, um, when I'm doing the long preaching, I get really nervous, um, and this lectern gives me something to hold on to so I don't fall over. Also, there's a secret cup holder here, which is just super cool. I probably should have brought up something to put in the cup holder so that ruined that. Okay, one of the reasons that I'm more nervous talking to you is that I really am more comfortable teaching children. Um, I assist my wife with the children's message on Sunday mornings. Uh, I teach in the nursery, and I teach at Mini Maestros on Wednesday night. We're singing about ducks, because in case you don't know this, we have a duck on the playground. If you haven't had a chance to go and see it, there's a duck who's built a nest on the playground, off on the edge. She's sitting on eight eggs, um, and we're all very excited uh, for when they hatch. Not really sure where she's going to take them, but um, that's April's. Rob, she can figure that out. Uh, I did, uh, I led the children's apologetics class on Wednesday nights during the year. And let me tell you, that was an adventure. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing that. I, I want to share more about that with y'all, and, and I will, if they let me speak in big church again. So when I'm teaching children about the Bible, I usually am telling Bible stories. Most of our lessons in our curriculum are about a particular person in the Bible and something that they did. So we talk about the person and how they lived, and what choices they made, and how we can use them as an example for how we should live our lives. The problem is that this morning's scripture passage is not exactly a, a Bible story. It doesn't lend itself to an easy, one day this person did this thing, and we should all do the same. It's much more in-depth than I'm accustomed to speaking about. So I have struggled to find a good way to tell this message today. It's not in my normal wheelhouse, which is a good thing, um, God calls us to grow deeper in what we do for Him. Um, so, here we go. Uh, Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Bow with me in prayer. God, we are profoundly humbled that you are here with us this morning. We are grateful for the enormous gifts you have given us through your Son and through your Word. Make us more faithful. Give us more hope. Fill us with your love. Amen. As I looked at the passage for today, I wanted to find the through line, the the thread that hooks everything together and makes a nice three-point sermon. I wanted to find a way to take a lot of these different points and connect them to each other. Now, Paul, of course, does the best job of this already. But the sentences he wrote in verses 1 through 5, those are complicated sentences. I had to tease them all out and pull them apart. Um, But it works out well. The entire book of Romans is an amazing book. And it so clearly spells out God's plan for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's righteousness, and how we should shape our lives. We've been studying Romans for a few months now. And up to this point, Paul has explained in great detail the importance of faith how crucial it is, how amazing it is, and how it brings all people into rightness with God. Not works, not piety, not diligence, not degrees or certifications, none of those things. Just faith. Faith is the promises of God as fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. Faith is enough. And now after all that reasoning and carefully laid out case in those first four chapters, Paul finally arrives at Therefore, he has made his point about faith, and the word therefore is a pivoting word. It says, because of all I've said before, here's what's happening next. And Paul describes now what happens after we receive our justification through faith. And I found the through line in this passage through another one of Paul's letters. Probably one of his most famous chapters, 1 Corinthians 13, is the love chapter. And it ends with, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love justified through faith, boasting in the hope, and God's love has been poured out. There's three points right there, and they connect in some wonderful ways. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. Peace is an incredible word. There is such comfort in such a small word. We want that comfort. When we read about war, we want peace. When we hear arguments, we want peace. When our own thoughts are racing and we can't stop thinking of all the horrible things that are happening all around us and to our friends and to our families and to ourselves, we want peace. Peace is rest. Peace is a soft breath. Peace is a cozy blanket. One of the fallouts from the pandemic is that I've now been working from home for the last two and a half years. At the beginning of the lockdown, I discovered how noisy is everybody outside, mowing lawns, cars and trucks. So I bought myself a pair of noise-canceling headphones. And the feeling I get when I put those on and turn them on is like a thick robe of silence. It just wraps me up. It's extremely peaceful. April, my wife, says she likes to come into this sanctuary during during the week when there's no one else here. She says, 
there's a heavy silence in this room when it's empty. It's peaceful. The problem is, is that all that peace does not match the rest of the world. No headphones are going to drown out the noise of the suffering that still exists here. We, we don't have time today to list all the things that keep us away from peace. Turn on the news. Just, just glance at your phone. There is overwhelming sadness and stress and misery everywhere. How can we say that we are peaceful? The difference comes, difference comes in what Paul says. We don't have peace from troubles. Jeremiah said this last week when he talks about God's promises. God does not promise us good health or good jobs or riches or fame or friends, but he promises to be with us. We see that here also, peace with God. Not peace from things, peace with God. It is a peace that does not end troubles, but it's a comfort in the middle of troubles. Do you know what hurricane hunters are? These are aircraft crews that get onto extremely specialized airplanes and they fly directly into hurricanes. They do this to gather weather data. And if you punch all the way through the winds, past these riotous tumult of clouds, you will wind up in the eye of the hurricane. And there is peace. It's bizarre. Go look for some pictures online. It's incredible. That's the kind of peace. It's peaceful in the middle of the storm all around us. Imagine astronauts that are blasting off on a massive rocket and the whole thing is shaking around them and there's noise and fire and smoke and then they come to a moment where they float and it's calm and quiet and peaceful. Outside them is still danger, the deadly void of outer space, but there in that capsule, there's peace. That's God's promise. I might not lift you out of your troubles, but I am here with you you have peace. Peace is not the only thing we receive because of our faith. Because of our faith, we also now have access to God. Pause for a moment and consider that. We have access to God. God, the creator of everything, the force and the power behind all the things that are, and because of the sacrifice of his son Jesus, we have access to him. Miss April references, when I pray soft and low, when I pray this I know, God will always hear. He will always hear. God is not distant. He is not far away and out of reach on some puffy white cloud. He's here. He's present. He's with us. And through our faith in Christ, we have access to Him. Access is the perfect word to describe this. When you have access to someone, that's powerful. Access is more than just, oh yeah, that, that person would answer the phone if I called. Or, oh yeah, I, I could text them anytime, night or day, then they'll text me right back. No, access is the ability to be in a person's presence and you are welcome there. They have made a space for you. They have made time for you. All the obstacles and barriers that are set up to keep people out, those don't matter to you when you have access to someone. I can probably best explain this by talking about Spider-Man. Yes, that's right. Back in the before times, when we'd never heard of COVID, my friend and I went to a comic book convention in Houston. Now, if you know anything about comic book conventions or you've seen them depicted in shows or movies, that's 100% accurate. It is 
people dressed up in wild costumes. It is long boxes of comic books for sale. There's booths with toys and action figures. It is wall-to-wall nerds. It's wonderful. (laughs) Comic conventions also feature guest stars. They can be comic book writers or artists, or they can be TV and movie stars. And at this particular con, that's how the cool people say it, at this particular con, the headliner guest was Mr. Tom Holland, and he's the actor who portrays Spider-Man in the current round of Marvel movies. At these cons, the guests will usually do at least two things. They'll be on a panel where they can discuss the movies they're in and behind-the-scenes stories, and they'll answer questions from fans, and they will sign autographs and pose for pictures. Now, if you are a lower-tier celebrity, you have a table out on the main floor area, and there's a line, and there's some staff people to help keep things moving. But not if you are Tom Holland. No, 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 no. Spider-Man gets his own space just for him. He was at the far end of the convention hall, had walls all around it, and extra security guards. And if you wanted access to Tom Holland, that will cost you. If you wanted to get Mr. Holland's autograph, that was $225. If you wanted a picture with him, that's another $225. And at the Houston Comic Palooza, that's what they call it, the Comic Palooza in 2018, hundreds of people were willing to pay that much money to have access to Tom Holland. It was a high cost, and plenty of people weighed that cost, and they decided it was worth it. For just a few minutes of spending time with someone who they loved, but who did not know them. See, that access is very, very temporary. When you're getting your autograph, you have time to ask one question and get an answer. And if you're getting your picture made, you might be able to crack a joke or two, and then the security guards whisk you out the door so the next fan can have their access, and then it's over. And it really is over. You can't come back to the convention next year and see Tom Holland and say, hey, remember me? You want to hang out and grab some lunch? It doesn't work that way. You can't even be at the same convention and come back the next day and expect to hang out with Spider-Man. In fact, you can't even do it in the next minute. Once you get your autograph and you pose for your photo, they hustle you out of the room and you're out. You can't turn back and say, oh, I wanted to ask Tom, I call him Tom now, I wanted to ask Tom something about his acting process. No, you're done. You're cut off. And the access that you paid so much for is gone. And thank the Lord... That's not what Paul means. Think about God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, who says to each of you, come, be with me. Yes, there is a cost, a very high one. But Jesus already paid it. He carried your sins all the way to the cross and died so that you can have access to God. When Jesus died, in the clearest picture of that access, the veil in the temple, that massive curtain that hung up to separate us from God, was ripped in two. There's no more barrier. There's no more obstacles. And all that takes is our faith. And that's incredible. And that's faith. Now on to hope. Hope is another one of those words that is so uplifting and inspiring. It puts a smile on your face and it lifts your spirit. At least it can. Uh, But there's another way that this word is used, and it's the exact opposite of Paul's type of hope. Uh, My mother sent us pictures this week of her refrigerator saga. Her fridge was on its last legs, would not make ice, 
uh, turned the ice cream into liquid, so she ordered a new one. The pictures she sent were of the preparations that she did to have the old fridge removed and the new one put in. She emptied out the cabinets next to the fridge, took out the dishes and the cups and bowls. Uh, she was told that the water line had to be replaced, so she moved out all the cleaning supplies from under the sink. She took off all the artwork and magnets from the fridge, took the boxes off the top. She got every cooler in the house and had them sitting on the floor in the kitchen. So when the new fridge was delivered, she put all the food in the cooler to keep them cool until the new fridge was up and running, and then she put them all back. And then she waited for days. It was a pretty standard story of being let down. My mom hoped she would get her new fridge quickly. And she hoped that it wouldn't take longer to install than they said. And she hoped it wouldn't cost more than they quoted. And she hoped everything would go smoothly. But she wasn't counting on it. Have you ever heard that bitterness in someone's voice when they say, well, I hope things work out. I hope that person shows up. That is the odd way that we use hope. We use it to mean the opposite of hope. It's a desperation. It is a sad, wistful hope that ends with a sigh because we don't think it's going to happen. And that's not surprising. That desperation comes from weeks and months and years of disappointment and broken promises and the pain that comes from having been let down again and again and again for things that are inconvenient, like a broken fridge, but also for things that are hugely significant, like promises from a loved one. And thank the Lord, that is not what Paul means by hope. Think about a time someone did promise you to do something and they delivered. A time that they kept their word and your hope was reestablished. I pray that you have people like that in your lives who are reliable and consistent and dedicated. Our son is home coughing and sick. And April said I could, that she could stay home. But that means I would have to be the supervisor, and do the children's message, and preach, and do lunch bunch. And I said, is there anybody we can call? And she got on the phone, and people said, yes, we can absolutely come and watch Stay With Peter. We can count on them. That's the kind of hope that we get to boast in. That's the hope that God gives. The message translates hope as alert expectancy. That is a great phrase. That is not a passive hope, or a reluctant hope, or a doubting hope. It is alert is poised for action. It is on the balls of your feet, ready to spring forward. That is the hope of children leading up to Christmas morning when they are so excited to see what's coming. They can't wait to see what's in those presents. That is the hope that comes when you are counting down to the last day of school. In my former job, I was a public school teacher, and there were some years, whew, there were some years, and the teachers that are out there, you know that feeling of, whew. During some of my most challenging years that I was a teacher, I would make a paper chain to count down the days until school was out. I hung it up in my house, and each day, when I had made it through another day, I would tear one link off, and I would be one day closer to being done. Because no matter what happens during those difficult days, the earth keeps turning, and time keeps moving forward, and that last day will come. That is the hope of a new day when we have made it through the night and the sun rises again and we are reminded God's mercies never fail. They are new every morning. It's hope that does not say if that happens. It's hope that says when it happens. It is alert expectancy. It is, I can't wait to see what God is going to do next. Let's be honest, that type of hope is hard to come by. 
because we have plenty of experience being let down and disappointed. Have you ever done a trust fall where you, you stand with people behind you and you wrap your arms up and you close your eyes and you fall straight backwards? Which I'm not going to do now because I thought the band was going to stand up here the whole time and wait for me. Um, they're interesting to do because you really do have to trust that the people are going to catch you. You have to have a hope and an alert expectancy that is going to propel you to take an action that might severely hurt you. Now, how do we get that hope, that joyful, excited, and confident hope? Paul tells us, and I have bad news for you because it comes from suffering. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Suffering stinks. We don't like it. It hurts. It breaks our hearts. And it can make us doubt and fear and hate. And it really stinks that it is inevitable. We don't ever get away from it. Even if we manage to do get something resolved and we move on from it, there's more suffering to come. Pick a time of your life. There's always something that's not going the way you want it to. There's always something that wears you down and causes you hurt. And there's always more suffering coming right behind it. As much as we don't like the suffering, we know that it toughens us up. We know that good can come from it and we can grow, but it still stinks and we wish it didn't have to happen that way. But it does. Going through difficult things really does increase our perseverance. You, you don't train to run a marathon by sitting on the couch. You don't build your muscles up by lifting feathers. It is the struggle that builds that muscle and that endurance, and that character. Let's go deeper than that, though. When we exercise to build strength, or we practice to develop a good habit, that's just us working on ourselves. It is when the difficulties become too hard, and the suffering is too much to bear, and all our strategies and our coping techniques are not enough, and we don't see a way out. That's where God is. That type of character-building suffering is not relying on our strength but on God's. When things are fine, there's no need for us to be rescued. When things are going smoothly, there is no watchfulness or hopefulness of saying, well, how's God going to get me out of this one? My wife has suffered for many years in her efforts to help her mother. Her mother has many, many struggles, including some that keep her from perceiving the world clearly. She is angry at the world, and she is angry at her children in particular. April and her brothers have spent years getting their mother the help she needs, helping get her finances in order, getting her connections to medical services. In return, their mother gives them anger and blame. April had to grow up too fast and take up her household responsibilities. She did not have the childhood she deserves. That suffering continues to this day. Our son does not know his grandmother. But through all of this, my wife's perseverance has grown and her character has been shaped. And that has turned into something good for her. It has made her the woman that I fell in love with. It's the bride of my life. She is the strong and virtuous mother of our son. It has built her up and made her character shine. And her character does shine through. A few months ago, I was having a conversation with an unchurched friend of ours. We were at a cross-country track meet for our son, Peter, and she had come to watch him run and cheer him on. April was off talking to Peter, and my friend and I were talking. She has known us for years, and she knows all the backstory of April's mother and that 
terrible situation. And I was getting her up to speed on the latest things that were happening, and she shook her head sadly as I talked because she knows how much this has made April suffer. And she looked at me and asked me directly, how has April managed to endure this for so long and still be the kind of person she is? Boom! What an opportunity! What an open door! What a chance that I was handed because I was able to turn to her and to speak the truth. I didn't have to say, well, April is just really strong, or oh, she found a way somehow, or life's like that. No, I got to look my friend straight in the eye and say with confidence, my wife has faith in God. That is boasting in the hope of the glory of God. That's the perseverance and character that's produced hope. And she can see it in April's life. It's so clear to her. April endures, and I got a chance to share that gospel. And that hope leads us to an even greater hope. Our friend and her husband, they're the ones that we've been pouring into and praying that they would come to know God and be baptized. We know they can see this in us. They can see people who've not had an easy life but have come this far and are still in the middle of it but still have hope. Our prayer and our alert expectancy is that these friends of ours will see through us and see God. And that's hope. Now on to love. love. Love is at the foundation of all this. We have these promises from God, and we can count on God to do these things. He's God, after all. He can do anything. But why us? God can have whatever He wants. God can make whatever He wants. Why us? Of all the interesting things in creation, of all the vast expanse of the cosmos, why so much attention to what we are up to. It's love. God loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The whole Bible is a story of how much God loves us and the incredible plans He has for us. Paul chose a beautiful phrase to describe how God loves us. God's love has been poured out into our hearts poured out. Not a trickle, not a sprinkler, not a soaker hose, a pouring. It is definitely Texas summertime, and weatherman Jason was exactly right about the temperature. And if you haven't yet made it to a water park, go, you know, because it's hot. But look around for a water park that has this particular feature. There's a splash pad area where you can run around and they've got different fountains and misters and, and sprinklers and water slides, but at the center is a structure with a gigantic bucket on the top of it. And water is spraying into it and it is gradually filling up. The bucket is set on an uneven pivot and as it fills up, you can see it start to wobble and begin to tip over. And when that starts, all the kids run to stand underneath it and they wait with alert expectancy for that bucket to fill up and tump over and pour water out all over them. That's a picture of God's love, waiting, hoping, suffering in the heat, and then being absolutely drenched with an outpouring. That's love. When I started, I told you that I'm used to telling Bible stories about people in the Scriptures and, and how they live their lives and what we can learn from them. Well, I found one that lines up with faith, hope, and love quite well. And it comes from a man named Paul. 
uh, a few years before he wrote his letter to the Romans. You can find this story in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are out preaching in Philippi, and they met an enslaved girl who had a spirit in her that let her predict the future. This girl kept following them around, announcing loudly to everyone, these people are servants of the Most High God. They know the way to be saved. They're telling you about it right now. You really should pay attention to them. I'm paraphrasing. After a few days of this, Paul, in one of my favorite descriptions of him, got annoyed and he cast the spirit out of her by invoking the name of Jesus and the spirit left her. That's some pretty strong faith right there. He didn't waffle. He didn't wring his hands and worries. He spoke the name of Jesus in faith and went about his business. Now, the people who owned this fortune-telling girl were not amused. They were making money from exploiting her, and when they weren't able to do that anymore, they raised up a mob, and they dragged Paul and Silas to the authorities. Paul and Silas got stripped, beaten with rods, severely beaten, the Scriptures say, and thrown in jail. But not just jail. The deepest inner part of the jail There they were also shackled by their feet, and they had a jailer posted outside to keep an eye on them. And when they were trapped in that dark dungeon, locked in place in their cell, suffering the pain of being beaten by rods, cut off from their fellow believers in a hostile city, what were they doing? Praying and singing. That was a place of absolute despair, but they had hope. Not that weak, defeated kind of hope. Well, I sure hope the jailer lets us out of here. No, an alert expectancy. Do notice, they were singing their hymns before they got set free. Around midnight, an earthquake hits. The prison doors are flung open. Everyone's chains just fall right off. The jailer wakes up. He sees the doors are open, thinks that all the prisoners must have escaped because who would stick around in a place like that? He realizes how much trouble he's in, and he decides he's going to kill himself. And Paul shouts, don't harm yourself. We're all here. They were still there. They were all still there in the dungeon, in the middle of a place that could rob people from hope, but they were still there. Surely they said to themselves, chains are off, the doors are open, let's get out of here. But they stayed. I have to think that Paul and Silas knew how afraid the jailer would be and how much trouble he would be in, but they stayed so they could show love. The jailer fell down before them and asked, what must I do to be saved? The answer was a simple one, as simple as everything Paul explains to us in Romans. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. The jailer took them home, patched them up, fed them, listened to them, and then had the faith to believe in Jesus. And the next day, I like this part, when the magistrates sent word that Paul and Silas were free to go, Paul said, "Um, actually, no, you beat us and threw us in prison. You didn't give us a trial. By the way, we're Roman citizens, and you would like for us to leave quietly? I don't think so. You can come to us, and you may escort us out of here, which they did. And then Paul and Silas went to Lydia's house, and they met with their church family and encouraged them, and they told their story of how they had faith, which led them through suffering, to build up their hope, and then speak out in love. And now we have that story. And now we can go and do the same. Join me in prayer. Thank you, God, for Paul and all of his sufferings. Thank you that he did not lose faith or hope or love, but that he spread the message of your amazingness to countless people. We thank you that this message has arrived to us 
so that we can do the same. Thank you, God, that we are justified through faith. Thank you, God, that we are uplifted by hope. Thank you, God, that we are showered with love. Amen.